Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there's a NERVS update to support OTP26 and Elixir 1.15. So we've got a link to the announcement in the Elixir forum in the show notes. You can check that out. But the Raspberry Pi 4 has been updated to support LibCamera 1 and all of the official Pi cameras. And the GRISP 2 board has better support for its PMOD interface. And BuildRoot has been upgraded from 2022.11 to 2023.02 and contains many security and bug fixes for Linux libraries. If you are in the Nerf space, definitely want to check that out. The upgrade to OTB26 seems to be taking a while for some libraries to get that support. Kind of changes some core things, but glad to see Nerfs is catching up. Yeah, that's the sense I've gotten like from other language servers and everything. It's like the change to 26 did some real big internal changes that have impacted a lot of stuff. The small maps lost their implicit ordering, yep. which kind of like broke, broke a bunch of tests for me. <laughs> <laughs> did not realize that I was... Anyway, there's an SSL default that changed in OCP 26 as well. So be careful on that when, you, when you're upgrading. What kind of tests are you writing that that, that are checking the the order of maps? Is like, I know it's turn it, it into a list. List first should be this key. Like it's, well, I it's can't even easy, imagine. you know. But you got like years of code written on that where you didn't realize what you did. <laughs> easy to change. Just yeah. Sometimes you got to find it. <laughs> All right, well, next up, Phoenix LiveView 0.19 has some enhancements that Herman Valesco recently drew some attention to, and I'm glad he did. It escaped me. So we got a link to his tweets, which has some videos of him demonstrating it. But the short version is that there's support added for PHX viewport top and viewport bottom. So these events makes it easy to specify which event to fire when the viewport top or bottom is reached when scrolling. So that's probably the biggest help here. And so Herman shows how using these new events let him remove a probably pretty common JS hook used to detect when the end of a list has been reached. So that way you can trigger like another page or something like that. This is about pagination via a infinite scroll kind of effect. So all that to say is that now Phoenix has some events built in. You could probably remove some of your infinite scroll custom logic stuff and just rely on that. Enhancement kind of, you know, snuck snuck past me, but we thought it looked great. Wanted to pass it on. And thanks to Herman for highlighting it. Also, Ziggler 0.10.1 was released, and Isaac Yonemoto says that it's the easiest way to deploy NIFs on the beam. What a claim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's done a lot of the work on Ziggler, right? Like, so Zig is a separate language, and Ziggler is like the Rustler and Rust kind of comparison. So Ziggler is like the thing that, like, hooks Zig into Elixir. So he would be the one to know how well it integrates with Elixir. So he's done a lot of that work. So it's cool stuff. Yeah. And if you're interested in that, we'll drop some links in the show notes. There's, we've got a tweet and some docs. So check that out if you're interested. And next up, there's some interesting discussion around private modules in Elixir. And when I saw that, so Wojtek Mach shared that he felt that private Elixir modules were underused. And I thought, is there a def module P? It's like, there there can't be. No, there isn't. And then so I was like, I was looking at what he's talking about. It's like, oh, they're talking about the at module doc false. So you're just saying that there is no documentation for this. So that will actually keep it out of the docs. And depending on your dev tooling and language server, it may not show up there either. But to be clear, the module can still be directly accessed. But it is a handy way to signal to other developers that 
hey, this module is for internal use only. Don't use this. So like if you're a library author, it can be handy to have one of those deeper nested modules set as module doc false just to give that signal like, hey, anything you touch in here, yes, you can directly access it. That's not being blocked. But anything you touch is subject to change. So don't rely on it. Mm-hmm. So it's like internal use stuff only. So like it's it's a handy thing, I think, especially for libraries. Yeah, for what it's worth, there was like a discussion like a year ago about proposing private modules like differently in Elixir. So we got a link to that big, long discussion. The short version is module doc false is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were other exp- explorations on how to make this more obvious. All right. Well, moving on. We saw an interesting blog post in the library that we wanted to point out. The library is called Clotho, and the blog post is titled Testing Timer-Based Logic in Elixir with the Clotho Library. I guess I'm saying that right. The library is self-described as an opinionated, so gotta love those opinions, the library for testing timer-based logic in Elixir. And testing time-based code, especially like timer-based code, can be kind of challenging. You gotta think of things like the timer when the event should happen, some divine interval. Do you make your test wait for it? Like, what do you, what do you kind of, what do you do? So if that sounds like a problem that you've got, you can check out the Clotho library. One thing I know I've done is this is typically like dependency injection kind of, kind of thing. Like you might have an option for how long to wait or something, or you might have, I don't know, some little API send of an event to it. And it's like test only <laughs> to kind of trigger the event. So there's, there's ways around it, but Clotho looks like a good technique as well. So check it out. Yeah, that does look cool. I feel like I'm always scratching my head when I'm looking for timer escape hatches and tests. Right. So next up, SpawnFest is back. It's going to be October 28th through the 29th. So if you're not aware, SpawnFest is an annual 48-hour online software development contest where teams from around the world, you get one weekend to create the best BMAP that you possibly can. You can find information at SpawnFest.org. And personally, I'm excited about this. I don't generally participate, but I love seeing what people come up with. Some cool stuff has come from this in the past. So looking forward to going through those project submissions. And last up, there's an ML challenge. So there's a challenge to create a fast and efficient example of Elixir NX in the ML community to prove to other developers, other communities, that it is a great option for ML researchers. And just to read from this, it says... By implementing the techniques from Fast.ai's Lessons 10 through 18, we will be learning how to train a very accurate model using lower compute costs. When a business is trying to use a model in production, normally businesses want the best performing model that fits the problem constraints. And by learning techniques to improve model performance while also reducing the compute training requirements, we help reduce costs and have a better chance of meeting business goals. So what I like about this is it's not just about hey, can I have a model that solves this problem? But then we start thinking about operationalizing it or putting it into production. Then how long that takes becomes really important. And, you know, the compute cost becomes important because it's it's now not just I can prove that it works, but I'm trying to do it at scale. And so, hey, if we can show how Elixir makes that a smoother operation for people, that can be a big business benefit that can help get Elixir in the door in more places. So, hey, if you're in that space and you have any interest in helping Elixir do well in the general ML community, check that out and see if there's anything you can contribute. Yeah, there's a live book that sets up the problem and there's a leaderboard for you to submit your solutions to to see how well you do. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. 
They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Parker Selbert. Parker, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me or having me back. Yes, you've been with us before. Previously, we had an interview with you in January 5th, 2021. So it's it's been a little while. It's been a while. Yes, yes, it has. It's felt like a long time too. I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I feel it. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, because... You are the author of the Oban Library, and Oban is like, I don't know if it, I, maybe it's fair to even say it's like the de facto standard library that people recommend, at least for if you're doing background jobs in Elixir, you should check out Oban. And we wanted to catch back up with you and learn more about Oban, the project, Oban Pro, and just kind of touch on this again. Because talking on social media, I would ask people like, hey, who should we have on? What do we, what do you guys want to hear about? And people would always say, Oban. And it's like, well, we have talked about Oban before, but really that has been a long time. So it's like, it's been a long time since we've heard about where the project is, what kinds of things you have going on now and where it's going in the future. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in a town called Wheaton, which is directly outside of Chicago. Typically, I just tell people we live outside of Chicago. We used to travel a lot before the pandemic. But then we kind of put down some roots around these parts. But I have worked or contracted with a company in Chicago called DScout for a very long time, uh, originally as a Rails developer, and then migrated the company toward Elixir. I am now the chief architect there, in addition to all the opening kind of stuff that I do with my wife. So I remember when we talked with you last time, you were in a like an RV, like a motorhome. Yeah. And you did your recording from that. And it's like, yeah, that's what I, I gather when you say, hey, we used to travel around a lot. Well, we used to travel a lot on airplanes. And then once the pandemic hit, we got an Airstream and then we traveled around the United States a fair bit. So last time, I think we were camping at the Wilderness Lodge in Disney and we were there for about a month. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> nice. nice. Whatever the time limit is at Disney, that's how long we were there. <laughs> and then all of the conference talks I've done that are virtual were always in the Airstream as well. So it was a, <laughs> a fixture of the backdrop. So it's okay. All right. Uh, Cause I'm imagining uh, back in, back at that time, I don't know if the conference was in Florida, but you, you're doing a virtual, I'm just imagining you doing a virtual talk, but you're like in the parking lot at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Well, the first one, I think it was just in our driveway, but you can't, people would always say like, where are you right now? So like, oh, no, it's just, it's like the extension to the house. That's the office. It's a quiet <laughs> space that's outside of the house. Just happens to be portable. I'd love to hear a little bit about DScout. Like, what is it that DScout does? Like, especially now that you guys have Elixir as a major component there. Yeah, well, we've had Elixir as a major component for about six years. But just like anything, when you are trying to, well, migrate languages, but not do a complete stop everything you're doing, rewrite. So it, it's taken a long time, but we're finally moving away. DScout is a mobile research company that allows researchers to sort of crowdsource participation from people all over the world to, well, help them answer questions, record videos, do whatever it is they need to 
find out more about their products or their behavior, that kind of thing. So research, really. And fun fact, I maybe even thanks to Parker, I help out at DScout now as as well as one of the engineers there. And so, yeah, I can attest to all, all the Elixir stuff. And yeah, of course, we use Open here as well. <laughs> so, but we do some really interesting things. And I'm actually hoping to get to do some some Open work, not Open proper, but I'm getting to do some work that involves Open uh, here soon, I think, with like data migrations, which I think is going to be kind of cool. We don't have to talk about that. But anyway, I'm just excited about Open altogether. I, it's been a really cool product, but also a really good piece of software too for a lot of folks to use. Well, I have two questions about Open at DScout. One is, if anybody ever does a PR that involves any Open code, does does Parker just jump in and just like attack the crap out of it? Like, you did this wrong. You did that wrong. <laughs> you forgot about this feature. It happens. <laughs> I, so I, I jokingly describe our Elixir usage at DScout as 50% absent and 50% Open. It's pretty much what the breakdown is. <laughs> That's pretty close. Yeah, there's a lot of absinthe and a lot of open in there. You're right. All on a, <laughs> like a thick substrate of ecto underneath. But that's <laughs> pretty much what's happening all the time. So there are well over 100 different workers involved, like open workers. So most people are pretty familiar with the functionality and tooling and all, the, all that stuff. I haven't seen Parker jump in and like, yeah, attack a PR or something, but there's plenty of developers that have like good expertise in it. And so like there's, there's open, open source, open, and then there's open pro. And there's a lot of features that folks may not know about open pro that open pro has. And so they don't necessarily think to go there first maybe. And so like that, this isn't about these guys. I think generally folks might you know, those that, that pay for pro, they probably Google for open features and they'll find the open docs first before they find the open pro docs and, and look for their solution in there. And then, and just realize, just not realize that there's actually better features in pro that could help solve some of these issues. One of those being like workflows. We don't have to get to that now, but workflows is a pretty clutch feature in pro. I, I really like that one. This sounds like an SEO problem. Just have to get the pro docs to actually rank above the open source docs. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> it's actually, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because like I found myself like the fact that they're two different libraries technically. And so the documentation is in two different places. I find myself like, where should I be looking? Like sometimes they're in one place, sometimes they're in another. And it's, it's definitely, I'm sure it's a, it's a problem you've thought a lot about and it's probably not super easy to fix. Well, initially the products were part, they were hosted with the open source docs. They were done just as guides, essentially using the optional presence of like a path dependency to load the guides from pro, which was okay, but that it meant that you have, you're, you're tied. And so you, if you want to release a new pro version, you have to push new open source docs. And then you also can't get the nice normal type you know, like you can't get your type specs in there and you end up only having guides. And it was just so, it kind of um, neutered the fullness that we get with XDoc. Eventually that was extracted. And then because there's also web and web has docs, it was just kind of too hard to co-locate them. But then that's a whole other thing about just hosting your own, like publishing your own docs to a private repository. And even the fact that we have a the ability to do private repositories is pretty great. But the journey of making a server that was able to serve private packages and host private documentation and works with uh, GitHub and private repos and uh, Dependabot, that has been a long struggle to get that all working. 
Oh, yeah, I, I kind of remember uh, DependBot support happening like a couple of months ago or something like that. Like that was that was a pretty good. Uh, remember that we featured that on the news, I think, even a couple of months ago. Yeah. The, well, the problem was that if DependBot can't resolve one thing in your whole repo, it just it just crapped out and it wouldn't even try to do the rest of them. So anybody that had Pro or Web just couldn't use DependBot anymore, which was kind of a bummer it was a bummer for for me for us so it's worth fixing but now it's fixed yeah well i think we need to back up a little bit you know it'd be a little bit irresponsible to not at least let some of those people who are new to the elixir community get a little bit of an intro to what we're talking about so like just summarize like what is open so that people who aren't familiar with that can just kind of find a way into this conversation the formal definition would be a background job processor that uses persistent queues. So in this case, what it really means is something built on top of Postgres or SQLite that lets you delay when you want to call a function with some arguments to some time in the future. It could be you just want to do it out of band asynchronously, or it could be that you want to do it in a minute or some other time. So that's the core of what it is. And then it's a lot of other tooling built on top of that because you get so many great features from Postgres or from just having a, a SQL back to your database. So things like unique jobs, cron that is guaranteed not to overlap and duplicate like you would get from quantum or something like that. Cluster leadership without having to use distributed Erlang. There are lots of other features that are kind of bolted on top of that. Yeah, retries, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's actually a blog post which I had started way back when I was in that Airstream in Florida that I didn't finish until <laughs> sometime this past year, which was uh, about why, why tasks aren't quite enough, because there's such a strong mm. concurrency story in Elixir. And you, the advice you'll see is we're coming from another language, we're coming from Ruby or Python, and OTP and Elixir have just everything that we need, which is mostly true. You have all of the core, the, the base functionality there to make it easy to do things. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have retries out of the box or that you're going to have resiliency to restarting or crashes in the middle of you running something where you, it's, this is really important work. It's We're generating reports for people or whatever it is, and you can't have that stop during a restart. I will point out, because I like what you're identifying there, that like tasks and you know just the ability to spawn and, and easily create another process one of the things I love about that is like right now I'm doing some stuff with live view and I want a task to spawn off and be a concurrent process, but I want it to be tied to that live view so that if the live view goes away, I want that worker to go away. But then you have those other situations where I want this to happen in the background. And even if my app restarts because I redeploy, I still want that job to be finished, right? Like that needs to be persistent. It needs to be resilient and it's like you're talking about like that I can say, I want this job to be tracked. I want it to be retried if it errors. And, you know, having that that level of recovery is something that takes a whole other separate level of design and thought. And it's like that's what I know Oban is one of the things that it's focused on solving. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing that it's focused on solving. You mentioned tasks and the analogy that I make in the blog post is spawn is built in tasks are built on top of spawn to add a lot of other conveniences like being able to link things and get messages for free 
Open has sort of taken that another level. And so instead of just an async task, you have something with a lot more features around it for recovery and reliability. Yes. And so another thing I always want to make sure that uh, if someone is not already familiar with Open, that, that they know, you mentioned that it's a persistent queue. And it is worth pointing out that it is designed on top of Postgres. Postgres being the default database you use on Elixir application, that, that seems to marry up really nicely. When we had previous discussions, one of the things I loved about what came out in that discussion was that so many times you have a job that you want to do, like, oh, I'm going through a new user signup, and I want to create a job to send a email at some point. But then if that user signup flow crashes and breaks or the user cancels it or something, something happens where it, it's not going to finish, I don't want that job to stick around. I don't want that job to still send out the email, even though like their user account was not set up. And that's where it being in Postgres and having transactional isolation and being part of that whole transaction is where you get some really nice power that you don't have if it's in a separate queue, like a Redis or some other kind of like SQS or something else, like where I've put the job into the queue, it's like, it's still going to happen. So like, I, I think that is worth pointing out as one of the major differences or unique aspects of Oban. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on, on why that's such a big deal. There are kind of two things there. One is that you're going for something that's a bit more ubiquitous. So Postgres is by far the default choice for most applications. So that just means there's less friction to set something up. It just makes it, I do a migration and now I'm able to use something. But then in addition to that, because it's married so tightly with Ecto, and I know it's possible to write applications that don't use Ecto, but that is very unusual. Just like most production applications will use Phoenix, even though you don't need to, we have a, a really good, not monoculture, but a support system for the libraries that the community has chosen as being sort of the excellent foundations for your business. And so Oban decided, I decided with Oban right away to build on Ecto rather than something else so that you can have the ability to just enqueue as part of a multi-chain or enqueue within a transaction that's started by you know a Postgres transaction and have it just work seamlessly. Like you don't want the condition that typically happens when you have a queue in something else where your transaction doesn't finish, but your job's still there and then you can't find the record and you have all these things. So it's good for, for the extra reliability of it. I've come from Rails development and the big engine over there is Sidekick and Sidekick is Redis-backed. And I know that there's like a lot of complex Redis stuff that can happen there and that Redis is you know, fundamentally different than a Postgres database or a SQL, SQL-like database, right? Like it's, gener it's generally going to be seen as a lot faster because it's doing a lot more simple stuff. But based on my experience with Rails and Sidekick, that's been touted as like a very fast background processing engine. And there's an interface on top of that active job that makes it slightly slower, but a common interface anyway, all that stuff. But Redis being the big backend there. And I remember learning about Oban, you know, after I came to Elixir, but that Oban was, yeah, Postgres at the time, only Postgres backed. Now you now you support SQLite 3, which is fantastic. But what were some of the reasons why you went with a durable storage engine like SQL was it just acid compliance, you know, the way to do transactions that just made more sense? Like, 
you know, was speed taken into account here? Tell me, tell me about why not Redis. Uh, so I'm a very big fan of Sidekick. I've written a lot about it in the past and uh, gotten great advice and support and had good conversations with Mike Perum, the author. And DScout was a very large user of Sidekick, including Sidekick Enterprise. And when we started moving to to Elixir, we needed compatibility between the two. So we needed to be able to enqueue a job from Ruby into Elixir or vice versa. And none of the existing libraries really worked. So I, I started something that was really just meant as a simple wrapper that could feed jobs in, and that was called Kick, so K-I-Q. And we made good use of that, but what we discovered is that a lot of the features in Sidekick Enterprise were not compatible with open source Sidekick. What ended up happening is, as I got deeper and deeper into trying to support those things, I learned all of the ugly warts and weird sort of hacks and things that had been done in Sidekick, and then to some extent, pro and enterprise Sidekick, to try to make those things work. So, for example, using Redis, there isn't a table. You have things like sets or lists, which have very fast operations on them, but they only support the very fast operations. So when I have something like a queue, I have to use a list, which means I serialize some data and I stick it in there as a blob of JSON with no structure or anything else. And then when I want to get it out, I atomically pop it out. And I can scan them kind of, but I can't scan in some sort of way where I'm sorting it or I'm filtering it or doing anything like that. That would require just dumping the entire Redis table or writing little Lua scripts to go and manipulate it. Yeah. I, I remember having to do that. Like if you have to go find a job, like if this particular user had a job that related to them that needed to process some stuff, like you'd have to scan the whole jobs queue in, in, in Sidekick. And I remember that being like, in some systems that was just terribly inefficient, really slow. And it like could bog down like other things going on. Sure. And it is possible to do sort of atomic operations. There is the notion of atomicity in Redis, but it is fairly complicated. So if you wanted to do something like pop a job out and then record some statistics about it, and then also store a backup in case your system crashes, so you don't lose the job, then you'd have to get into multiple different data types and it became really, really difficult to support. So when Redis 5 was coming out, they introduced something called streams. And streams are based on Kafka streams, the notion of this stream of event data that you can partition and consume from as many different places as you want. And I initially wanted to build a new project that would just be based on Redis streams because it seemed like a, a you'd have the best of the lightweight, quick operations from Redis, but you'd be able to crawl through something and it just seemed like a great fit. And then working on it, I noticed that some of the things that were really standard, like having retry queues or scheduled jobs and all those things, streams just didn't work for that. And there's no one data structure kind of way to do that in Redis anyhow. And so that's when I realized, you know, what the operations that you really want here is like a table. We all know some amount of, we, I can't say all know, but most web developers are pretty familiar with SQL, whether it's through just the console or something else. And if you have all of your data structured kind of place that you can query through, whether you have some other extra view layer on it or not, you can get in there and debug things and just see like what's what's recently been failing, what are the states of all these things, what's the timing. And that's directly what led to using 
SQL instead of Redis. There's always going to be some sort of like performance consideration between the two things. Like one's your primary database and you have a lot of other activity happening in it. Another one is just a dedicated thing that you either use as a cache or maybe you use it as a persistent place to put stuff. But for most applications, the performance of Postgres is way more than enough. Do you think Redis will ever be a, a supported backend for, for Oban? Or is that different enough to be, I don't know, McKellen, some, diff- some, some other kind of uh, open source library? I don't plan on it. I have sort of toyed around with the idea of making a backend that was just enough of one to do benchmarks between them, to look at load and throughput. But quite honestly, the throughput, the limitation for Oban, and I published something last year, which was um, a million jobs a minute with Oban, and actually turned out to be closer to 2 million jobs a minute once things were tuned. But what that really comes down to is throttling inside of Elixir to stop more database requests and the, <laughs> the granularity of that uh, debouncing is only one millisecond because it's done through you know message sending so and you can only send after up to the resolution of one millisecond not anything shorter than that so it was really the number of jobs it could process was whatever your concurrency limit was times however many milliseconds there are in that time and so that's really what it came down to so throughput not such a concern when I hear folks talking about, uh, I don't know how, how much research they do, but some it is social media because you never, and on social media, who, who knows what kind of research they didn't do, yeah. which is probably not much. But uh, it's like a, the gut feeling that a lot of folks might have in that when, they, when they're considering something like Oban is, is like, oh, that's, that's not going to scale. You know, like that when, when you get to a billion jobs or something, that's not going to scale. But therein lies the issue is like, are you really going to have a billion jobs? You're like you're probably not going to have a billion jobs. <laughs> There's a long tail between the people running a billion jobs and everybody else. Right. And if you get to a billion jobs, you're on your own. Sorry. But I will say there are people running hundreds of millions a day. That happens. And I guess that is an option too, right? Is you can optimize at that point. And that's probably the right answer, right? Is is don't optimize like that. Don't prematurely choose, you know, a Redis only back job system because you want to process a billion jobs when you when you have a startup you probably don't need to to do that too early but when you get to that kind of scale and you do choose something a little bit easier to use at least with an elixir application with oven because you probably already have a database too is that you can optimize oven as well you can separate the table you can make it a, a different database i mean rails people do this all the time you can have multiple worker nodes you know that are consuming off the redis queue and processing stuff and chances are your jobs are probably hitting the database too. <laughs> like you probably have another bottleneck to worry about, you know, other than Redis anyway. So I feel like that argument falls apart pretty quickly. The point of a background job is always that there's a side effect. You're never doing it as a pure function where you just wanted to compute some Fibonacci. There's no point in doing that. So you're sort of limited by your external resources, whatever the side effect is. If it's your file system, if it's your database, if it's your, if it's S3, whatever it is. You're, you're doing something. You're not usually limited by the performance of running an individual job. Yeah, I will say, though, the sad thing about pushing open data into a different database is then you're probably going to lose that transactional benefit, right? You do. Uh, people, that is, there are a couple of sort of scaling things. The first point is when, because 
Obin is built on Ecto, and the default suggestion is to just use the same database pool as the rest of your application. If other parts of your application are slow, and hopefully Obin's not the one who's being slow, then sometimes you'll get starved of connections. And so the, the easiest thing to do right there is we'll just make two different pools. Like Obin only has its only its tiny little pool. It's got two connections, and it won't touch the rest of your application. But then the, the bigger part after that, if you can't scale your database vertically, is to scale horizontally by getting another database. And people do do that, but they tend to be more in the realm of running hundreds of millions of jobs a day. They're not there at billions. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, so hopefully that'll settle uh, any naysayers out there about why didn't you use Redis? Well, you get a lot of good benefits with with uh, Postgres. And I'm going to gloss over this too, but there is like SQLite three in there too, which is really interesting. But that for another another kind of you know web application crowd that wants to do the SQLite three durable storage instead. I do want to talk about Open Pro and Open Web because like there's some really neat things in there. But I guess before we go into like specific features, tell tell me a little bit about like the origin story of Pro and, and Web. Like how did it how did that start? I've been doing open source to some extent for a while, but I never had a project that was popular enough where I was going to get burned out or where there was some sort of danger of um, just the guilt that you have when there are open issues and things stacking up. And so a lot of I mean it's heavily inspired by what Mike Brown did with Sidekick Enterprise and all that. But it initially started with just web as a way to just to build something where you could sell it alongside to fund it. Because it's it all it will add this level of validation to the work that you're doing where I feel great supporting this. People are definitely using this. They're using this to the level that they're willing to pay to support it. And that means a lot. And it's just kind of an inspiration to keep focusing on something for years to come and so open's going for about four years and i think the inspiration we didn't we weren't charging for anything for a long time there the inspiration has held up because it's something exciting to come back to and focus on every day so i think this is a good point to just kind of get a a quick overview of the the different pieces here so like there's open the open source project that anyone can just come and add to their project and get started with it's worth understanding what do i get from that and then there's Open Pro and Open Web. So those are adding something additional. Maybe just give us an overview of what these pieces are. So uh, Open Source Open is the core sort of system library that will let you run jobs. It has some simple plugins like cron pruning to clean up old things. Everything in there is enough for people to get started just with a nice performant system and it has some extra features in there which are pretty advanced like unique jobs to say i only want one of these in queued before one of them actually runs or things like that which is also part of the way that cron works and sort of necessary so that's what the the core is and then it also has a lot of additional behaviors in it to make it pluggable and heavy use of telemetry which also might be slightly abused in other places as an event system that hooks into other things, but telemetry is amazing and uh, amazingly, I'll say abused, abused in other places. So that's what open source open is. And then you have open web, which is a live view powered dashboard that people host in their own application that lets them view, interact, and manipulate all of their jobs. They can view historic things, they can cancel whatever's running, 
they can filter and search through it. And then there is Open Pro, and Open Pro is an extension of open source Open, where you take what was sort of a simple pruner that only will prune every, say, five minutes, some number of jobs. And instead, it's expanded to where you can filter down, like, I want to keep discarded things for this long, or tools like that. And it also has other workers, like workflows, which were mentioned before, to let you put, sort of compose things. And the idea is everything in Pro, you could conceivably build on your own by extending on top of open source open. But instead of you doing it, we've done it for you. And you can pay for that extra level of polish and support and, and robustness. So I'm going to run through some of these features real quick, because a lot of folks may not know, you know, what, what all Pro includes. And there's some pretty, pretty really help. There's really helpful things in here. So like, You've got them categorized into extensions, workers, and plugins. So under extensions, you've got like a smart engine, which enables uh, global concurrency, global rate limiting, queue partitioning, bulk inserts, unique bulk inserts, that is. You got the pro worker, which includes options like encryption, which is, that's probably pretty important for some fields, right? Forced structure. You've got something called relay, which is about inserting jobs and awaiting the results across any number of nodes. So this is more about distribution, testing helpers. Okay, and then on workers, you've got batch workers. You can chunk workers. You've got the thing I mentioned earlier called workflow, where you can compose workers together with arbitrary dependencies between jobs, like allowing sequential or fan out and fan in execution. That's pretty critical to a lot of folks. You've got some plugins like Dynamic Cron, where you can add it during runtime, adding cron jobs during the runtime, not just like statically configured that got dynamic lifeline, prioritizer, pruner, like you mentioned before, dynamic queues and dynamic scaler. Ooh, the scaler is a really good one. Why don't you talk a little bit about the dynamic scaler one? Dynamic scaler is is newer. And I will say this actually jumps back to the SQL Lite 3 kind of thing. When you release a feature and people are like, yay, this is great. And then you hear nothing else, like there are no bug reports, you're convinced Nobody's using this. <laughs> Clearly, there's no way that something was shipped that just kind of works. And that turned out to be a kind of the case with SQLite 3. As soon as people started using it, they caught little tiny bugs and stuff, and then they fixed it since then. So Dynamic Scaler is a tool that allows you to introspect the open queue, like the throughput per queue, and then trigger some other actions, usually a cloud action like scaling horizontally. So for example, in a staging environment where you, you might run jobs for a small portion of the day, but you're paying for a, a system the whole day, it would be really great to scale that down when there's no activity in the system. Or in a more in a busier environment where let's say you sometimes get spikes of activity for very long running or intense processing background jobs, and you normally just run one node, but sometimes you need to scale up to three, five, 10, whatever it is, you want to be able to do that. And so the dynamic scaler allows you to orchestrate that from within your own system based on your open queue throughput at a very low level. That's a pretty interesting one. I know that scaling has typically, at least in my previous lives, the scaling question has been answered at a, at a uh, infrastructure level. So like in the example of Kubernetes or something, you would you might query the CPU usage or the RAM usage of your deployed pods out there, your containers in there. And depending on those metrics, it will, at the infrastructure level, create more nodes out there to presumably handle that kind of that kind of scale. Same thing on like web nodes too. But in this case, the dynamic scaler for Open is 
probably a little bit better to tune to actual like workloads or like you said, the throughput of jobs. If you just got like too many jobs and the, the number of jobs are increasing more than they are decreasing, that's a better metric to perhaps measure upon than strictly, you know, infrastructure wise. And so that dynamic scaler supports, you know, Heroku. I think it supports some, some other ones. What, what were some of the other clouds that you support? It doesn't ship with actually any out of the box because they're so small. And there are way more than I would ever actually be able to support. And I don't want to have to ship new versions of whatever that little glue layer is with each, with each thing. Plus, people end up with different HTTP. Like some people use Rec and some people use Hackney and you never know. So it's kind of a pluggable behavior, but with a lot of different examples. Gotcha. But you do have examples of EC2, Fly, Google Cloud, Heroku, and even Kubernetes is in there too. That covers the gamut, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it tries to. One of the things I think is interesting is that Open Pro is one of the, what I think is probably the first like paid libraries in the Elixir community. And I know that meant you had to do a lot of groundwork to make it possible to like to work well. So if someone says, yeah, I want to use Open Pro and they want to add that to their project, what does that mean for them? Like, cause it's not pulling from GitHub. How does that actually pull in the libraries and, and how do they get access to it? So when you get a license, you get a, a license key, which is used as sort of an auth token. Thanks to the hard work of the Hex core team, there is a notion of self-hosted repositories, package repositories. And what we provide is our own custom repository that speaks that language and it serves up if you can authenticate with a license, it will serve up what existing packages are there and it will let you fetch. So just like you're using hex or even private hex, instead you're just pointed at a different URL, which is the open pro URL. And then you fetch packages straight from your, into your mix file, like you would from with any other mix kind of workflow. So the installation kind of looks like you run a command that's like, Hey, Outside of Hex, I want you to also know about this Oban registry, and you can find it with the keyword of Oban, and then you can point your dependency in mix.exs to point to the Oban registry rather than the official Hex registry with a key, and then everything just magically works. Yes, that's exactly right. Much better stated than my attempt, Kate. <laughs> Kate, it sounds like you might have some experience with that. So I imagine that because you're hosting the repository that way, like you have a little bit more insight into who may be using your project. Like if I'm just hosting up an open source project on GitHub, I'll see my download numbers or, you know, through hex PM, I'll see the, the downloads, but I don't really know who's using it. And are they really using it or what are they doing with it? I don't know. Do you have a little bit more insight then because people may be getting licenses? So we track the most recent time something was used, how often it was used, which packages they're downloading. So they can sort of figure out what needs to be supported. But because we authenticate everything against an exact key, we, we know which licenses pull it most. And which is a fun insight into people's, uh, maybe they need some caching in their CI layer, or maybe <laughs> the, the developers are refetching and blowing things away far more often than you'd expect. There's a really big disparity between the, the, the tightly optimized CI flows and then the other ones that are just fire hosing from your, your self-hosted repo. Is there any companies that you can kind of share? Like, hmm, who might be using this? That might be interesting. So we have on the front page, we have the, the little logo cloud kind of thing. So there's some interesting ones in there. Some that we're especially kind of proud of are Apple is a, a big one. 
Pepsi slab and sketch and yeah, cars, cargo sense, pretty good gamut from across the Elixir community. It's really rewarding to recognize the name. So, but sometimes you get things that you've never heard of, like, oh, it's a veterinary supply company that's built an elixir. So it's very surprising what you learn as far as companies that have decided they're going to build their whole product on elixir. It's, it's really cool. What I thought was interesting is just hearing that, you know, Apple is using elixir in any way, somehow inside their company. And, you know, they just don't talk about that a lot publicly. Like, oh, this is how all of our services are built. They're just not that transparent. But so little, little hints like that, you know, that we get, oh, there is elixir is somewhere in there. Yeah, it, it appears to be. And as far as I know, I think it's related to something with energy management, but I only know that from the outside, from their job postings, not from anything. So we we know whether people are pulling in OpenPro and OpenWeb, but we don't know what's happening in their application. It doesn't phone home or do anything like that where we get a sense of application names or anything like that. Just just PSA. So Kate, I know you guys are using it too, right? Have, what has your experience been like? We're using it. We love it. It started on my team originally, and then some other developers were like, they started using it too. And I mean, my team personally, we really enjoy it. We use it for a lot of stuff. We've got, I don't know, I should go count how many workers we have someday, but I, I would say we have several handfuls of of them, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> More than a few. You're, you're sticky. You're, you definitely can't get rid of Oban at this point. Can't get rid of it at this point. And, and honestly, like, even maybe more important than like the number of workers is like how important those individual workers are. And some of the workers that we have going on right now, our fundamental aspects of the application that I work on. And if they stopped working, a lot of the value that our application adds would just dissipate, go away. I mean, it, the, the, the story of any SaaS platform is, is that it's it is more, more cost effective to you to buy a SaaS product that does a thing that you want versus building it on your own. And something as usually not business core as a job processing engine, the Oban fills that purpose. The cost of you know having just one developer do a good job processing library is going to be way more expensive than just subscribing to Oban. I mean, and technically, you don't even have to subscribe to Open. You can just do the free one. But web is going to give you that lens into the performance and retry, you know, the, the easiness of managing your jobs. And then Pro is going to have all those extra features we already talked about. Like, those are definitely worth it. Like, it is definitely worth, yeah, having a good subscription to to Open because the, the, the amount of time and effort that you're going to, you know, have a, a developer dedicated to doing those things on their own, far more expensive way way more expensive i heard uh a different podcast i don't remember which one it was but the host had said that they were convinced that developers are pathologically terrible at doing cost analysis for their time <laughs> so what, yeah. what their time is worth versus the cost of something nine dollars a month i can't do that <laughs> so uh, i in uh some tweets i think last year had calculated like how much time you'd have to pay a senior developer in the United States to match one year's worth of a subscription. And it was 10 years. <laughs> it was like a lot. Like very, very <laughs> imbalanced. Yeah. Like obviously go get a license. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the challenge of a lot of us developers suffer from is we don't value our time financially. We think, oh, that's an interesting problem. And I'm good at solving interesting problems. And I just want to spend some time doing that. Like they don't even think about like, well, 
how much is that going to cost of my time and when I could be doing something else that's doing like either adding value to the company or like personally to me. We're not economists. <laughs> I've, I've also seen some tweets of folks that are like, they're almost militant about like, optimizing developer time and like rejecting all meetings and stuff like that because they <laughs> they they will like cost analyze a meeting like to have 10 people in a meeting if three of them are senior developers you know and and whatever that you just taking all the salaries of all the people in there divide that up by an hour however long it is and this meeting just costs like 10 grand right like you don't realize the kind of time that it takes and that's just a meeting to talk about something that's not even you know, the, 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 the time it takes to, to develop like a good job processing library, right? Like it would be anyway, I, I hopefully I've convinced enough people <laughs> <laughs> your time is valuable. Go get a license. All there is to say about that, I guess, is that if you are a, a company and you have a budget for your software project and you're making money, then it seems like a very easy option. And if you're a hobbyist and you're doing an exploratory thing, like, hey, can I make this work? And I'm trying to do a startup kind of idea. The open source one seems like it would be a great solution just to get your jobs working, get everything going, right? I think people get overly worked up about it. People have too strong of feelings sometimes. <laughs> I promise there are very interesting problems underneath, especially with distributed leadership or things like that and workflows that can communicate and working without clustering. And there are lots of very tricky, hairy problems underneath, which initially are very fun. But much like Kate said before, there are people that are relying on it. So there's a big trust element. So there's a lot of weight that comes with, sure, it's fun, but you kind of have to make it work. You can't get it 90% of the way there and have it fall down for 10% cases. Well, I think we've covered a lot of that. But I do want to just touch on what's next for Oban, like any plans that you can share about what's coming? Yeah, we are working on releasing a new web version. It's been a pretty long time since there was an overhaul of web. And it has some features that I'm extremely excited about, built-in visualizations of queue counts, worker timings. It's entirely filterable, distributed, so you can have as many nodes all kind of communicating. It's all in memory. It doesn't require an additional database. It doesn't add extra load to Postgres, but you can drill down to see for this worker in this queue, what's the average execution time for the past two hours. You can change percentiles, that kind of thing. And that's just kind of built in. I know a lot of bigger companies will end up with Datadog or other tools built on, but you don't get the direct insight into what the job was and what errors that might've had or what the args were. So it sort of straddles that aggregate and also co-located right next to where your work is happening. But it also has keyboard shortcuts and filtering. So tap complete kind of stuff. There's, there's some exciting stuff. We're very excited to share that. Also have open training happening. Uh, my wife and I are doing a training, six-hour training in Orlando for ElixirConf, which is pretty big. And then we have well over a year worth of roadmap for pro features that people have requested to help people scale and just get more out of what they're doing. Very cool. Well, if people have any questions or they want to get in touch with you, or maybe they just want to follow you online and see where you end up next in an RV, where should they go to do all that? So we have a mild presence on, well, I guess what was formerly called Twitter, but considering the fact that its overlord seems bent on destroying it, try to <laughs> separate our time a little bit. Going to the website is great, but uh, join the Elixir Slack uh, or the Elixir Forum. Those are both great places to engage. If you have any questions all over, anything that gets tagged with Oban, We'll pop in and 
have a conversation about it. I'll just call out too that you have a notification list. So if you go to getopen.pro, you can stick your email in there and get updates too when new stuff comes out. Uh, that's true. So if you're subscribed, you'll be notified about new releases. There's also a, an XML feed. If, you, if you're into RSS, you can get a feed when there are new releases. Very cool. Well, thank you, Parker, for helping us catch up on what Oban is doing. And I was really interested in just learning some of the things that you've accomplished in that gap of time since we've last spoke, which is like two years, which is a lot, right? That's a lot of time. Oban is definitely one of those projects that I recommend people check out if they're in, interested in a background job processing. And like, I think it really, I think it is like the de facto, hey, you should check this out first. And congrats on hitting a 1.0. I know it was a somewhat arbitrary. <laughs> it's been stable for a while, but congrats. That's a good milestone. Thank you. It felt good to get there. It, it seemed funny to have Oban on like two point something and then Pro, which is the thing that you're standing behind and selling to be, you know, version 0.14. <laughs> it, was, it was good to check. Yeah, but we're all used to that. We all use LiveView. <laughs> I think I mentioned somewhere else that I used to talk to Jose on the forum and then we had like this extensive kind of thing going on. So before Pro existed, had been working on web for a long time and sort of that wasn't that pleased with the way that sales had gone. Partially that was just because of the price that things were at. But also because the the value, while there is a lot of value to it, it's just not the same amount of value as having something that can like workflows or that kind of extra thing. So I had talked to him and sort of commiserated. And he said, well, if you just sort of look at the things that people need in a larger company and try to isolate whatever those features happen to be and remove just a slight bit of what you've put into open and then repackage that as something new, maybe call it like pro. And so there was a direct collaboration. And then the initial announcement, I had written something as like, well, this is where we're announcing that Pro is happening. And then it's going to be the version, the other one to two bump. And I sent it to him at night. And then when I woke up in the morning, he said, I liked what you wrote, but I kind of rewrote it for you. <laughs> Here, use this. He's <laughs> like, I initially was just going to make some edits, but then I couldn't, I couldn't help it. So he sent that back and that ended up being kind of what we ended up posting. So <laughs> he had his hand in that journey too. Wasn't that the time in history where bite pack was a thing too? Around that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually how I, no, that was, maybe it was later. I think it was a little bit later. Okay. All right. Because the idea was also that before we were self-hosting, we used to just sort of piggyback on like private hex that we were going to use bite pack. And so we had worked together a little bit for what the features were that were required to be able to do bite pack. And then they also just realized that, there aren't any other packages. There's no. There's nobody in the ecosystem. <laughs> there's no reason that you would have an application that just skimmed off the top because there's nothing to skim. Yeah, there's. That's a very narrow market. Yeah, which I wish there were more. All right, and and context for other listeners, Bytepack was a quick paid product. I think for releasing paid hex packages uh, and managing those in the Elixir community, and I think it did some other things, but they archived it and made it public and open source. So like that was nice. But yeah, Bytepack rip. Oh well, better luck next time. And nowadays, I think there's another thing that's kind of taken its mantle, maybe uh, another thing called, a, what was it, Code code ship or something like that? But it's supporting more more languages, so it's it's more than just uh, Elixir and Erlang kind of packages. So if you are, if somebody out there is listening and they're considering a paid package, like there is still, like, the, yes, this, Parker, you might have a unicorn story right now in, in Elixir <laughs> land, but, but that doesn't mean that that other folks can't do the same thing. And there are packages out there now. So go check out CodeShip maybe. Or, or two, reach out to Parker. He might have some uh, advice for you. 
<laughs> I'm going to tell you to go use code code ship. That's, that's purpose, <laughs> purpose built for this. So you don't have to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Parker, for meeting with us. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.